Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. I am Pete Stearns and I'm one of our pastors here. And I am privileged uh, to have the opportunity to launch this new series of ours, Focus on the Apostles' Creed. You see, the Apostles' Creed is a statement of belief that undergirded the early church and carries great significance for you and I today. Well, when I was in high school, I was a part of the track team. In particular, I ran the 4 by 100 meter relay. And for those that are not familiar, in the 4 by 100 meter relay, four teammates work together to complete one lap around the track, each running 100 meters. We keep track of our progress in running by passing a little metal cylinder called a baton. The first runner, after completing 100 meters, hands off to the second one, who then carries that baton another 100 to the third and then the fourth. If you hand off that baton before your 100 meters is completed or significantly after, your team is disqualified. And if you don't cross the finish line carrying that baton, you are eliminated from the prize. Well, as a high schooler, I was fairly competitive, believe it or not. But unfortunately for me, my sense of competition outweighed my actual talent. I was not very fast. I was, I was moderately quick, enough to be able to compete at some level, but I certainly was not challenging to win the state meet in the 100-meter dash. And my teammates on the 4x1 were pretty much the same way. But in our sophomore year of high school, we got it into our heads that by senior year, we would qualify for state. Not only would we qualify, we would win. That was our goal. This group of not very fast guys were going to win the state meet, and we just had to figure out how. And so we started watching other relay teams. In particular, we kept an eye on the very fastest teams, teams that were built up of state qualifiers and, and champions. And we noticed something peculiar. Even the very fastest runners in the state all had one thing in common. They would slow down, sometimes coming to a screeching halt during the baton pass. You see, this exchange caused a momentary pause that negatively impacted the overall team's speed around that track. And we thought to ourselves, I wonder... If we could be so good at handoffs that it would outweigh our deficiencies at actual running. And so in our sophomore year, we began to stay after practice every single day, after the rest of our teammates had left, and we practiced handing off that baton. Over and over and over again, every single day, for an hour, for three years. And as you would imagine, we got pretty good at the handoff. And that, at that exchange. And wouldn't you know it, a group of not very fast guys qualified for the state meet in our senior year. In fact, we were the only relay team in the entire state to qualify for the championships without having even one person on our team qualify for the individual 100-meter dash. We had no right to be there on that track, but we were because we took seriously the exchange of that baton. You see, in those three weeks leading up to the state meet, we practiced over and over and over again. In fact, 
We made it a rule amongst our team that at all times during the day, at school, in class, in passing periods, at home, during dinner, as we went to work, as we did our homework, as we slept, we would carry a baton in our hands because we wanted to be so comfortable with it. The night before the finals, our team practiced for hours in the hallway of our hotel. And wouldn't you know it, a group of rather slow individuals won the state meet the next day because they were really good at handoffs. And, <laughs> well, thank you. Living in my, uh, my old glory here. Um, no, but I, I say this because in many ways, the Apostles' Creed is like that baton. It's that baton that unites you and I together in one faith. But it also unites us with previous generations. In fact, it ties us all the way back to the founding of the church. And you see, this is really important because the early church did not have the resources that we have today. You see, we see in the book of Acts that, that the church is exploding in size. God is adding thousands to their number each and every day. But these new Christians don't have a Bible. These new Christians don't have access to their favorite podcast. They don't have scripture at their fingertips. Instead, they have turned their lives around. They have been transformed by the words of an apostle that has come to their city and spoken to them. They have come and they have challenged their way of thinking, their way of living and called them to a relationship with Christ and they feel that fire of the Holy Spirit and they turn and they transform their lives and then the apostle leaves. And they're left with maybe one communal letter that is housed at the center of the church for that city. And so you can imagine that this started to create some diluted perspective of the gospel. And so the church recognized a need to create a central statement of belief that would unify the church regardless of where you were living geographically, regardless of your access to scripture and the Torah and the teachings of the apostles. And so they developed the apostles' creed. And what I find so interesting about the Apostles' Creed is that you would imagine it would be a document outlining appropriate behaviors, right? This is a fledgling operation, a church that's trying to understand how they move forward, how they impact their community and the kingdom of God. You would expect this document to outline things that they should be doing and should not be doing, but those types of calls to action are not present in this creed. Instead, it is singularly focused on the character and the life of a triune God. You see, today, we have the opposite challenge of the early church. We do have resources. We are constantly bombarded with hot theological takes. We follow social media influencers. We have our podcast of choice. We have the opportunity to open this Bible each and every day. But unlike the early church, we have taken this wealth of resource and handpicked those statements, those beliefs, those calls to action that feel most appropriate to us. And we have curated 
this kind of personal faith identity that may or may not be the same as those that are sitting right next to us in this very room today. And you see, so we as a church have become divided. And it is necessary for us to be drawn back into that which roots our faith, which is a simple statement of belief that calls us into servanthood of a triune God. Now, in a world that calls us to constant action, in a world that calls us to taking a stand, this may feel a little bit soft. But the reality is that when we uh, partner together in professing our belief in this God, his kingdom becomes clearer. In fact, I want to open up to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Because Paul is talking about this very thing, and he's talking about the character of Jesus Christ. And in response to this understanding of who Jesus is, he says this, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Paul, in picturing what the redemption of God's creation will look like, articulates the profession of our belief in Jesus as central to the eternal kingdom of God. When we stand and we utter this confession of belief, we create a picture of what God's reconciliation with this world looks like. And we have an opportunity to catch a glimpse of our future. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be breaking down the clauses and the stanzas of this Apostles' Creed. And we're not going to be doing it in a linear fashion, so to speak. Instead, we're going to look at the central themes and how that ripples out throughout the rest of the creed. So today, as we enter into this conversation, we look not at the first stanza, but instead as the central one, with a statement that identifies who it is that we bow before. Today, we look at this statement that says, we believe in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Right? A very simple statement. Some of us think to ourselves, this is the Sunday school answer. What do you believe in? I believe in Jesus. But I think when we read this too quickly, we take for granted the significance that's found in each and every word of this statement. So bear with me as we explore this further. So the first thing that sticks out to us is that we are professing belief in Jesus. Right? Oftentimes we say Jesus Christ as if it's one word, but it's not. By professing our belief in Jesus, we are rooting ourselves to an historical figure. We are professing belief in a man that actually walked on this earth, one that experienced the suffering and the hardship that we experience, but also the joy and happiness that can come with this life. And this is distinct from any other religion or many other religions, because we are not pointing to a concept a theory. We are not simply rooting our faith in a God that 
that lives somewhere up in the sky, but instead, we put our trust and our hope in a man who is verified to have existed not just in our scriptures, but also in a wealth of historical documents. This is where we get this idea of a relationship with Jesus. We can only relate to Jesus because Jesus was both fully man and fully God. And so as we begin this decree of our faith, we are pointing first and foremost to a belief in a historical figure. But then second, we claim that that historical figure is Christ. Because Jesus Christ, this is not a first name and a last name. Christ is an identifier. It's an occupational title, and it is one that carries great significance within the Hebrew faith. Because by claiming that Jesus is the Christ, we are claiming that he is the Messiah. The Messiah who is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He is the culmination of these God-appointed roles that we see throughout the Old Testament. He is the perfect representation of the prophet, the priest, and the king. You see, in the Old Testament, God would divinely appoint prophets. And it's easy for us to assume that prophets are, are fortune tellers or, or, or tell the future, but the reality is, is that a prophet at its very core, was someone that spoke for God to his people. They revealed the truth that God had manifest in them for the people of God, the children of Israel. And so when we understand Jesus as the ultimate prophet, as the fulfillment of this truth, as a fulfillment of this voice of God, we recognize that it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can understand this book and understand all of the world that surrounds us. Right? It is because Jesus that we don't find ourselves burdened and weighed down by the laws of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. We eat pork even though Old Testament would tell us it was unclean. We follow the building codes of our municipalities instead of those ones found in Leviticus. And we are confident doing so because we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of those laws. We understand that Old Testament text as pointing to the central figure of our belief, Jesus Christ. And so these texts gain their value and significance in that they prepare the Hebrew people for Jesus. The Jewish faith is all about preparing oneself for the coming Messiah, which is fulfilled in Christ. But also, it's important for us because it allows us to understand our scripture more broadly. Because how many of us have handpicked specific passages that resonated with us this day. We do one of these things and we hold it open and then place it there and say, what does this verse say and mean to me? How does this apply to my context, to my biases, to my world? And we build a narrative that's not actually rooted in Jesus Christ, but instead it's rooted in the truth of our lives. And this can be particularly dangerous. It's what's led the historical church to suppress the voice and leadership of women 
in ministry. Because we've hand-selected a few passages and we've understand them with our cultural biases and made our own assumptions that aren't actually written in the text while forgetting that Jesus Christ, upon being risen from the dead, reveals himself first, not to Peter, not to John, but to Mary. And it is Mary that is the very first person that carries the gospel message to share with the disciples. And so understanding that God has placed women centrally to the gospel message, we now can read these passages of Paul in a different light. You see, it is only through Christ that we can understand this book, which is why so often for many of us, his words are highlighted in red. Because we are to test everything we read in Scripture against the ministry and the voice of the perfect prophet. But equally important, Jesus identifies in the book of John that the Holy Spirit will come. And he's talking about the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says is interesting. He says, the Holy Spirit will come and will remind you of all of the things that I have already taught You see, how do we test this revelation of the Spirit in our hearts and in our minds? How do we test that this is is a, a holy conviction rather than one that is rooted in a fallen world? We look at the prophet and see our lives through his lens. So first, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the role of prophet. But second, he is the culmination of the priest. Again, God appoints divinely priests to stand on behalf of his children in sacrifice. It is the priest in the Old Testament that steps forth in the Holy of Holies and lays down burnt offerings before God to atone for the sins of many. And it is in Jesus' death and resurrection that we see Jesus Christ stands in the throne room on behalf of you and I. Think about that for just a moment. Even though we are sinful, even though we are flawed, even though we have failed, even though we have sinned yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Jesus Christ died so he can stand before Yahweh on our behalf so that his sacrifice can atone for our brokenness. And so Jesus stands as the perfect culmination of the priest. Finally, the last role in the Jewish faith that we see designated and appointed by God is that of the king. And much of the Old Testament is a chronology of the failures and the shortcomings of the kings of Israel. And in Jesus Christ, God redeems those failures, redeems those shortcomings, and offers the holy and perfect king. And it is in this that we are drawn into the next portion of this powerful stanza. I believe in Jesus, a historical figure, Christ, one of deep religious significance, God's only begotten son, our Lord.
We are drawn under the lordship and submission of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now, a couple weeks ago, uh, it was actually after I preached and I was kind of having a lazy Sunday afternoon with my three-and-a-half-year-old shepherd. And we were sitting on the couch and we were watching highlights of the Masters. And Shepherd's never played golf before, but as he was watching, he looked at me and said, Dad, I like golf. Can I play golf? With the simplicity of only a toddler. And I looked at him and I said, I, I can't think of any reason why not. And so we went to a friend's house who had a set of toddler golf clubs and we headed to the driving range. This would be this father and son bonding moment. I remember the joy that I felt as a kid when I stuck that bucket under the machine and watched as the balls tumbled out. So we got our big bucket and we walked and we picked the perfect mat where we would learn. And suddenly, as I looked at Shepard holding that club like an ax in his hand and the ball sitting there on the ground, I was flooded with anxiety because I had no idea how I would teach him how to hit this ball. I thought about all of the things that, that bounce around in my head when I play. All right, you've got to square up your shoulders. You've got to have your feet in the right position. You have to hold your hands in a certain way. You've got to tuck your arm, keep it straight. You've got to use the gravity, all of these different things. Flick your wrists as you come through. And I realize there's no chance my three-and-a-half-year-old is going to retain this all. So I audibled. And I said, Shepard, all I want you to do is look at that ball and never take your eyes off the ball and hit it. And this is what happened. Good one, Shep. You see, no sermon would be complete without a video of my son. I'm like that annoying friend that constantly is like, hey, you want to see pictures of my kids? But I just have a better platform. Uh, <laughs> but Shepard went through an entire bucket of balls that way, recognizing that as long as he looked at that one ball, as long as he kept his eyes on that, the rest would work itself out. You see, this is a concept that makes sense in other facets of our life. Right? It's this ruthless focus on a singular goal. It's what makes people successful in business, in school, in sports. It's what makes us successful in our communities and with our families is, is keeping our eyes on the goal and keeping this ruthless determination focused on the thing that matters the absolute most. Oftentimes, we talk about the persecution of the early church. But have you ever paused to wonder why the early church was persecuted? Because from a 30,000 foot view, it doesn't make any sense. Right? Because the Roman Empire, by very nature, was polytheistic in their beliefs about God. They were open to the idea of, of many gods. In fact, we see in the writings of Paul that, that Paul teaches about uh, an idol that's found in a Roman temple that is marked out to the unknown God. So why do the Romans have such a problem with the Christians? They don't seem to have a problem with those of Jewish faith that, that believe in Yahweh as their God. And yet, Christians are beaten, abused, and sent to death 
because of their belief in Jesus. Well, it's because the early church had a ruthless focus on a singular God. Unlike other religions of the day, unlike the Romans, they were unwilling to recognize Caesar as Lord. They were unwilling to name any of these other gods as lords in their life. Instead, they understood that there is one Lord, he is the Lord, and he trumps all other powers in this universe. And because their singular fixation on this one true triune God, they were put to death. They were marginalized and oppressed. Oftentimes, in the 21st century Church of America, we talk about persecution. We talk about the ways that we are pushed down by our culture and our society. But I'm struck by the reality that in many cases, this is in fact the opposite persecution that the early church faced. Because more often than not, I fear that we as a church are persecuted not because of our ruthless fixation on a singular God, but rather by the inconsistency of a faith that calls us to believe in the one true Jesus and yet also allows us to claim many other lords in our life. I wonder if non-believers look at us and say, you're claiming moral superiority because you follow Jesus, but you also follow the same gods that I do. You worship the gods of power and influence, affluence and comfort. You follow after the gods of, of politics and happiness. And yet you claim to be different than me. And it is in calling out these inconsistencies that we defensively feel persecuted. But I wonder if that narrative would change if you and I claimed the lordship of Christ in our lives and let the rest of it figure itself out. You see, this lordship has power. It has power to break down the divides of our culture, to cause walls that separate us to crumble. And I want to look at a book of the Bible that's not often read. It's a very short one, and it is filled with, with rich significance for us in this day. It's the book of Philemon. Now, I wish I had time to go into all of the context here in Philemon, but the book of Philemon is, in essence, a letter from Paul written about a slave named Onesimus. And, and, and slavery during the time of the Roman Empire is very different than the slavery that has plagued our nation. It is not on the basis of, of skin color or race, but instead oftentimes on, on debts or, or, or conquering war and all of these different things. So it's very nuanced. And again, I wish we had more time to look at it. But in essence... Onesimus has created or has, has perpetrated a crime against his master, a man named Philemon. And Philemon is kind of this significant Christian in the church of Colossae. And we know that he is significant because he's on a first name basis with Paul. 
And so we don't know exactly what the crime is, but we know that in Philemon, Onesimus has done something to betray the trust of his master. Likely that he has stolen from his estate. And because of the brokenness in this relationship, Onesimus flees. He runs away. And in this day and age, the punishment for not only committing a crime, but also then fleeing your master would have been significant, if not fatal. But Philemon, in his flight, somehow finds himself in the presence of the apostle Paul. And in his time with Paul, he comes to claim Jesus Christ as the Lord of his life. And in the recognition of this lordship, he decides that he needs to go and redeem and reconcile his relationship with his master. He needs to fix the brokenness that has occurred because of this crime, even though it puts his life at significant risk. And so you can understand his anxiety. So Paul writes a letter from Onesimus to carry to Philemon. And Paul pleads on behalf of Philemon, specifically in verses 15 and 16. Perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he is, the, is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. You see, Paul writes this letter to go alongside Onesimus in order to facilitate the reconciliation between he and Philemon, no longer his master, but instead his brother in Christ. He wants him to go back, not so that he can serve him for the rest of his life, but so that they can be united forever in relationship under the lordship of Jesus Christ as brothers. Theologian Ben Myers says this about the power of the singular lordship of Jesus Christ in our life and in the early church. He says, Christianity took root in societies that were rigidly stratified and hierarchical. There were clearly marked distinctions between men and women, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. But the Christian community did not accept that people were defined by those social distinctions. All came to the same baptismal waters and confessed the same Lord. Let that sink in. The singular lordship of Jesus Christ had the power to break down the barriers and divides of slavery in the early Roman Empire. That because Philemon worshipped Jesus, because Onesimus worshipped Jesus, they were no longer slave and master, but instead brothers knelt before the same God. If that lordship had the power to break down such distinct divides during the early church, imagine what that lordship could do for you and I and the global church. Surely, 
If Jesus Christ's supremacy can cause the structures of slavery to crumble, then so too can it break down the walls of politics that we have formed among one another. Surely it is in the lordship of Jesus Christ that the distinctions of race and gender and socioeconomics become antiquated. And we instead understand each other through the lens of the great prophet, under the sacrifice of the perfect priest, so that we might be bowed together before the one king of our lives. You see, when we profess the Apostles' Creed, this is not just a simple prayer. It's not just a regurgitation of our Sunday school lessons. Instead, when we profess this creed, we release our grip and our control on the lords of our life so that we can singularly pursue Jesus Christ and allow the rest of it to figure itself out. If this baton is what allowed the early church to thrive and grow and multiply, then surely, if we speak it and mean it today, it can change the world that we live in and draw us into a picture of what God's eternal reconciliation and redemption looks like. Would you stand together and join me in reciting this Apostles' Creed? And as we say it, let us profess our faith with conviction, recognizing that these words unify you and I, not just with each other in this room and online, but also with generations of Christians that have come before us and generations of Christians that will follow. And together, as one kingdom church, we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.